Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. Today on the show, we're happy to welcome for the first time Al Getz from Charting the Territories. We're going to talk about the recent passing of Danny Hodge. Al has done a lot of research into the McGurk Territory, which was Hodge's home territory in the 60s and 70s. So he has a lot of information about that, and we're going to talk about some other aspects of Hodge's career. We're also going to talk about an article he wrote about Nature Boy Buddy Lindell tracking his early career. Uh, Buddy was somebody that Al knew and worked with during his time on the independent scene. We're also going to talk about Al's research and his statistical formulas and his wrestling sabermetrics, for lack of a better term. Uh, This is something we didn't talk about with Al since he didn't know him, but I did want to say a brief word about the passing of Brody Lee. I first saw him almost 15 years ago when he was wrestling in Chikara when he was still doing his New Kids on the Block gimmick before he evolved into the dirty, bearded truck driver that we knew later on, and that character evolved, of course, in his later career in the WWE and in AEW. Uh, I was always a big fan of Brody back then for a... A great working big man. Uh, Loved his matches, especially the feud he had with Claudio back then. We want to wish all his best to his friends and family at this time. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. Wrestling lost one of its most legendary figures this past week, and we are very happy to have someone on the show whose current research just happens to figure figure him uh, extensively. To talk about the great Danny Hodge and some other parts of his research work, I'm very happy to welcome to the show for the first time from Charting the Territories, Al Getz. How's it going, Al? It's going great, Mark. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I'm I'm doing well. I hope you're doing well as we approach New Year's. Um, but yeah, it's been a pretty sad weekend for wrestling fans, both you know, young and old. Yeah. Um, we had talked about this before we going to before we start, but uh, elsewhere on the podcast, I'm going to talk a little about Brody Lee because I saw him back in his his Chikara days, and I just want to make sure that we. We sort of mentioned that before we dive into the other stuff, so that people don't think that we're just not, not, not going. There's not going to be anything about it. There'll be something a little later, or maybe before this, depending on how it goes. But um, I was, th- I was trying to think about who might be a good person to get on to talk about Hodge, and you, your big uh, research project that you're doing now, both on your website and on the podcast. Um, centers on the McGurk slash Watts tri-state slash mid-south uh, part of the country, and of course, Danny Hodge being from Oklahoma is a very large part of that territory. Yes, he most definitely is. As a matter of fact, I when I was trying to figure out when I wanted to, what date I wanted to start my research with, I actually chose the first, uh, the beginning of October 1959 because. It is when Danny Hodge made his professional wrestling debut in Oklahoma City. So I, I literally made that my start point. And as you mentioned, going all the way through the McGurk years and then the McGurk slash Watts years and then into Mid-South Wrestling and, and stopping around March of 1986 when they became uh, the Universal Wrestling Federation. Yeah, and uh, I guess for 
people probably know something about the myth of Danny Hodge, uh, but for for a long time, you know, he was an NCAA heavyweight champion, and there have been a few of those that have gone into wrestling. He was the first wrestler, only one of two, I think, still at this point, who's been on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and that was back in 1957 when he was going for his third NCAA title, and luckily I actually managed to pick up that issue um, sometime this year, and so when people go and look for the pod, that's going to be the picture on there is the Sports Illustrated cover. And, of course, we know all the stuff about the apples and the pliers and his amazing grip strength. But uh, why don't you give us some background about Hodge and his career before he becomes a pro? Yeah, we talked a little bit about his collegiate career, as you mentioned, uh, a pretty phenomenal prodigy. Uh, I believe he was at the 177-pound division in college, um, it, at high school, he was 165, so he bulked up a little bit, I guess, when he got to college and, uh, you know, got that dorm food. <laughs> I know I sure did when I went to college. Uh, well, but he it's, got it's funny. There's actually, it's funny when you say that because in the Sports Illustrated article, the reporter's following him around, and they go to the mess hall or the dorm room, and all the other guys are dining out on all this scrumptious food. And he, all he's eating is cold roast beef. And he said, that's all I can have until weigh-ins. So he was at least, he, he may have sampled some of the dorm food, but he was certainly strict about his training. That reminds me of the, uh, the MTV special for Les Thatcher's school, where one of the wrestlers, and it might have been the, the mailman kid, was only eating tuna fish, was eating nothing but canned tuna fish out of the can. I don't know if I, I don't know if this uh, jogs your memory at all, but MTV used to have a, a, a documentary yeah, series no, our, of yeah, our, odd jobs. Yeah. No, I remember. Yeah, I was gonna say because I think tuna fish is seems to be uh, one of the staples that wrestlers often talk about when they're breaking into the business. That that's one of the things that they subside on. I think I think Brody was famous for Brody uh, Bruiser Brody was famous for eating lots and lots of tuna. Because of how cheap, I mean, it was good for him. Plus, it was plus it was super cheap at the time. Yeah, high in protein, low in carbs, and and inexpensive on a you know per per pound basis, I guess. Um, Hodge uh, competes, I, I believe he uh, uh, qualifies for the Olympics twice. Uh, ends up though not going right out of the gate into professional wrestling, but his first. Uh, athletic endeavor endeavor after wrestling is professional boxing uh, and he's brought along and he is uh, considered a a pretty solid prospect gets a string of wins i'm not all that familiar with his boxing career but he ends up uh losing two bouts in the second one it's pretty brutal and i think uh, i don't you know i think it was a mismatch and i think it was intentional I think uh, Hodge and his managers were on the outs, and so they put him in the ring with someone they they thought was had the advantage on Hodge, and, and Hodge ends up getting beaten pretty bad and having money issues with his managers. So he says, this isn't cut out for me, uh, and he goes back to his roots, and he uh, reaches out to either Leroy McGurk or Strangler Lewis or both, and... Uh, 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, October 2nd, 1959, in Oklahoma City at the Stockyards Coliseum, has his first professional wrestling match. And over the course of time, I think he's probably one of the more famous NWA Junior Heavyweight Champions of all time. I think he held it, well, no, I guess we should safely say numerous, because I know one of the things that you've talked about on your podcast is that title changes aren't, especially back then, were a lot more sort of, shall we say, fluid than they are today, where everything is so meticulously yeah. doc- documented. They're, they're not meant to be linear, and unfortunately, we, we want to make it linear because that's how our brain can sort of interpret these things. Um, he had, I think the number is approximately seven or eight, and if someone says seven and someone says eight and someone says six, I'm certainly not going to argue with them. But it's not just the number of times he held it, it's the time span because he debuted in October 1950, and he wins the world, the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title for the first time in, I believe it's July of 1960. So less than a year in as a pro, and he is the world junior heavyweight champion. And from then, 19, you know, it's from July 1960 through March of 1976, when his, uh, he was forced to retire after suffering injuries in an automobile accident, he is the champion for much of that time, dare I say, most of that time. Uh, so with the multiple reigns, sometimes they are very short title switches. Uh, one of the ones with Matsuda, I think Matsuda gets a couple of years with it. Ken Mantell has it for a little while. Uh, like I said, there's some short reigns in there with Savoldi and Lorenzo Parente and Joe McCarthy. But between 1960 and 1976, odds are if you pick a date at random, that the champion of record on that date would would have been Danny. And we should say for people who may not be too familiar with this history is that certainly modern fans view the junior heavyweight title as kind of a mid at best a mid card title and almost sometimes a uh, a job title if they remember you know Denny Brown having it for the longest time, or Steve Regal and Buck Zumoff having it in the AWA. But certainly, in the 60s and 70s, the junior heavyweight title, especially in certain territories around the country, including Oklahoma, was almost as prestigious as being the real world heavyweight champion. Yes, this territory actually didn't use heavyweights on a regular basis for years, and, and until really, I guess Bill Watts probably broke the uh, the size barrier. But as we mentioned, the territory was promoted by Leroy McGurk, who himself was one of the more legendary holders of the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title, and more importantly, its predecessor in, uh, in the, you know, before the NWA uh, was formed. Uh, after retirement, he actually ended up becoming partners in the territory with a man named Sam Avey, and in early 1958, A.V. retired, and Leroy took over as, as sole owner and proprietor. Um, over the years, a couple of people buy in with small pieces here and there. Watts becomes a partner later, but Leroy promotes what he knows, and not only what he knows, but what had worked in that territory for many years, and that was the junior heavyweight wrestlers or the lighter wrestlers. You think of a territory like Memphis, Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee are not large men compared to professional wrestling in you know Madison Square Garden where it's Bruno and Killer Kowalski and all these giants. 
Um, same thing goes for the Gulf Coast territory. Even you know, a lot of these territories in the South are are focused on the lighter weight wrestlers, and you have one of the most decorated, legitimate wrestlers uh, carrying the mantle for much of the '60s and a good portion of the '70s. Well, I think that's certainly true, probably for most of the territorial area where the promoters usually shape the territory in their own image. Like you said McGurk did it with junior heavyweights. Eddie Graham did it in Florida with, you know, workers slash shooters on top. Vern did the same thing in Minnesota, you know, and then even, you know, you know, we hear Ron Fuller every week talk about sort of the way he booked and, you know, he was... One of the things he said that, you know, when he took over Knoxville was trying to change the style, that he wanted more of an Eddie Graham type style because that's what he had been brought up with, both, you know, from when his father promoted and working under Eddie for a couple of years in Florida. Yeah, true. You know, a lot of times, like I said, the promoters will uh, promote what they know, and, and that often leads to uh, a – repetitive repetitive isn't the right word but the same you know the same style for many many years and you know when someone new comes in or takes over such as a ron fuller or you know in some places where they rotated their bookers more frequently sometimes you can see the bookers footprints uh on the roster of the territory uh and and you know they look to bring in that which they know or, or also in many cases bring in their friends and allies uh, to have some, some some trusted men in the locker room with you and have guys that you have confidence in. Now, when Hodge worked for McGurk, was he generally always a babyface, or did it kind of depend on who he was perhaps feuding with over the title? I assume when he was a touring champion, you know, it would be the same as the NWA champion where you could work, you could vary your your heelish scale, vary your heel tactics on the scale to defeat your opponent. But how did he mainly work in his home territory? Uh, he's a babyface. He's a hometown boy. He's a babyface. There are some instances of babyface versus babyface title defenses in the territory, but I don't think there's a, a subtle heel type role to be played. As I'm thinking about this, a very young Jack Briscoe had uh, several matches in some of the towns with Hodge, and they sort of did, uh, you know, what would be a non-conclusive finish to build to a rematch. As you read it in the newspapers, you can see that maybe they had Hodge sort of straddle that line, but I don't think the fans would take it that way in Oklahoma. Um, and as you mentioned, outside the territory, it's probably a little different. I'd say it's much closer to a Jack Briscoe than a Ric Flair. So it, it's, uh, you know, not subtle heel or just sort of playing it down the middle, being a tough, no nonsense uh, type of guy, as opposed to a quote unquote bad guy. It's funny if you think about Hodge wrestling Briscoe in Oklahoma, where they're both from, you know, whether you would have spl split loyalties, I guess, based on... In in these, this was in 66. I think Jack, if not a rookie, he was just barely in his okay. second year as a pro. He also didn't have the, uh, he was very accomplished in the collegiate ranks, but not at the level of Hodge. So it's more the young up and comer going against at this point, the 
you know, six year, seven year veteran. So it's, uh, you know, I, there's an easy way to, to tell the story of the match and, and protect everybody. You don't need to play roles. You, you know, it's not the good guy versus bad guy. It's the veteran versus the rookie. And that lends itself towards some, some dramatic, you know, interplay uh, in the ring. Yeah. I was just thinking that you could, you could sort of build it almost like a sort of more sportsy collegiate rivalry kind of thing with one guy being from Oklahoma and the other one being from Oklahoma state, you know, where depending on where the correct, where they were in Oklahoma that, you know, that people might be more pro Briscoe or pro Hodge, depending on where their loyalties lie in football. Yeah, that, that's a very good point that I didn't think about because I know they, they ran this throughout the territory. So they ran it in multiple cities. So there might have been some times when uh, the crowd reacted one way uh, and, and the, you know, maybe leaning towards Briscoe more. And then when they go closer to OU, it's, you know, that changes. That That's an interesting point. That's one of the great things about pro wrestling in these days is you're, you're not calling things ahead of time and you're not working the same match night after night. You are adapting uh, everything to how the crowd reacts. And so even if you're in the same geographical area, if this particular town is, is, has, you know, has a reaction different from what you were expecting, it's very easy to switch gears and adapt instead of worrying about, well, we already said we were going to do this. Well, cause I think I remember at some point on one of the, uh maybe on on between the sheets or on exiles that Chris was talking, they were talking about Florida and it was like young Luger and young Simmons were feuding, I think, or wrestling each other before they went to Crockett. And he was saying they didn't, I don't think they did this at the time, but you could have easily sort of expanded that to be the guy from Miami versus the guy from Florida state. And you would have that underlying tension and then depending on where you ran in the state you could have them sort of subtly change how they work depending on how where they you know where they were and who the crowd favored based on their allegiances you know it's that thing where you know it's you know wrestling doesn't always like to bring in people's real world pass but when you're in a more sports orientated promotion that those kind of things you know would make sense yeah, and you know, even the simple aspect of of having uh, you know giving wrestlers hometowns, whether they're legitimate or not, you know, if you you know, it sets up you know in in a possible easy way to set up the conflict between these two wrestlers. Well, you're from this you know this part of town, I'm from this side of town, therefore you know them's fighting words. Um, yeah, the 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 rules and structure of wrestling in the territorial days gave them many options of setting up you know return matches or grudges or you know reasons for fans to be you know what I call vested in the outcome. And if it's you know uh, for example if it's you know flood, you know if you're in uh, Georgia uh, in SEC country a heel from Tennessee you know this now that there's a story the story writes itself. Well, because what was it was in. I've, I'm not sure if they ever did this in Continental, but I know in Smoky Mountain when the when, once Doug Furness started working there that they were having Tennessee versus Alabama matches between the Furness and I think that's when his brother had started versus the Heavenly Bodies. So yeah, they were definitely playing up, you know, 
Furnace's legit, you know, football background being in Knoxville. Yeah, uh, and you might as well. You know, why wouldn't you do that? Um, you know, and so Hodge, yeah, Hodge being from Oklahoma, being a known commodity while in college. Why would you want to change that? Why Why would you want to say he's from Decatur, Illinois? Uh, you know, so you you. See, Sometimes, you know, the, the truth just uh, writes itself. And uh, a lot of the wrestlers in those days, um, their hometowns that they're billed as being from are legitimate more often than you would think. Um, a lot of them had ethnic, they, they used a lot of ethnic wrestlers up and down the card in every territory. Um, while we know, for example, Ivan Koloff was, you know, from Minnesota or what have you, but a lot of the, the wrestlers billed as being Italian or Spanish or what have you, uh, if they weren't born in those countries, they are of that heritage. Uh, so it adds international flavor. And you know, one of the things I, I when I look at these cards from the '60s, every territory has wrestlers from you know of various uh, heritage, and I think it's a way to sort of make the fans feel like these are the best wrestlers from the world. Oh, Lorenzo Parente is Italian. Oh, you know, Torbellino Blanco is from Mexico. Literally, wrestlers are coming from all over the world to my TV screen, you know, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they're going to be at the uh, Civic Arena this Monday night. It makes the fans think that they're seeing the best wrestlers called from literally a worldwide basis. Yeah, and I mean, you certainly have to look at all the various territories. I mean, certainly the... Vince, Vince Sr.'s WWWF is certainly built on first Bruno and then Pedro to draw. I mean, I I don't remember, I don't know if it was on your show or or someone else's show where they were talking about how you know the crowds when wrestling finally came back to Madison Square Garden, you know that it wasn't sort of your generic you know, white wasp New Yorker, it was, they were being drawn by Rock and Perez. That was, you know, the Italians and, and the Puerto Ricans that were filling the garden. And then, you know, that followed with Bruno and Pedro. So, you know, certainly in the New York, in, in the in, in the urban centers in the Northeast, that made sense for Vince because that's where a large percentage of his fan base was at the time, or at least the, right. the, the ticket buying fans were. Yeah, and, and, and even not just at the top of the card as far as what's drawing the fans, but just up and down the card, there are, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of everything. You mentioned Eddie Graham in Florida. He always had the legit, you know, shooter types. Hodge had a, had a little run there in the early 70s. Uh, Billy Robinson had a run there, you know, Roop, you know, guys with legit wrestling credentials. But he also had his monster heels or his foreign heels as well. It, uh, you know, it's sort of the three ring circus style to promoting pro wrestling is uh, in the course of one professional wrestling house show, you sort of mix it up and take the fans on, on, you know, a, a ride, almost like a carnival ride of ups and downs of, you know, legitimate uh, amateur style wrestling. And then you know, crazy Kim duck, uh, you know, trying to, trying to kill dusty roads. Well, since we're talking about the McGurk, since we're talking about this with McGurk, did he always have a strong native American Babyface on on the roster usually. Uh, not always, and usually maybe not usually either, but often. Uh, there is Kit 
Fox. There, uh, there's a few others, but I think, you know, I think with Hodge there, I don't, I don't necessarily know that they did that. They also, uh, their, the towns they ran on a regular basis were much more, were, were more urban. And uh, if they're going a little further outside of the cities, they're not coming as often. So they don't necessarily need, uh, you know, that type of a drawing card. It's more the appeal of getting to see these TV stars, you know, once a year. And it's, you know, in those days uh, in a small town in Oklahoma, the wrestling show coming would quite literally be the biggest event to come to that town all year. You know, uh, the Beatles, the Beatles aren't coming to Seminole, Oklahoma. Uh, right. So and then just, yeah. And we certainly saw, you know, once it, once Watts sort of takes over that, you know, he was always, he always had a strong African-American baby face, you know, uh, you know, with the dog and then, you know, all the long litany of people that he tried to book to fill the dog's shoes that, you know, never were able to quite replicate that magic that he had. True, and that that's also due to a change in the geographic bounds of the territory. Uh, in 1959, the McGurk Territory is Oklahoma um, and parts of Arkansas, basically the west half of Arkansas, the southwest corner of Missouri, including two towns, uh, Springfield and Joplin, and sometimes a little two towns that are right on the border that are in Texas, but are basically on the border of Louisiana. And that's Wichita Falls and Longview. It's not until 1961 that they make their first foray into the state of Louisiana. And this is uh, the northern half of the state has Shreveport and Monroe. Um, they also went into the southern parts of the state, Baton Rouge and New Orleans, but that didn't last long. And it wasn't until... 1968 that they went back into the southern half of Louisiana. They stayed in uh, Shreveport and Monroe uh, through the 60s, and, and they also started dabbling into Mississippi in the late 60s as well. So as they start running more and more in Louisiana and Mississippi is when you see more African-American wrestlers being brought in, and it's also due to the changing times. As a matter of fact, the first male African wrestlers in the territory, I, don't, I believe for McGurk, it wasn't until 1969, and that would have been Tom Jones, and his opponent, I believe, is the Sundown Kid, uh, and for the first couple of weeks, they would only wrestle against one another. Um, Tom Jones ends up staying and forms an integrated tag team with uh, Billy Red Lions, and they become very successful. But um, at first in the South, when, when they first were bringing in African-American male wrestlers, would, they would wrestle each other every night, and there was no integration of, of uh, races, uh, sadly. But thankfully, by the mid-60s in most of the South and the late 60s everywhere, we, we get past that. Yeah, and like you said, you know, and I think everybody sort of knows the success that the that the dog had at you know, in sort of the peak uh Watts era when you know, when he was king of New Orleans, as I believe someone once wrote a book about. So Yeah. Yep. Uh one of the interesting things I think I heard you mention on one of the podcasts was that I think that at that point, it's not for the the top card guys, but sort of maybe the lower mid card guys that you would almost that they almost had that they were running so many shows a week 
that you had some guys that really only worked each half of the, like the northern half of the territory and the southern half of the, of the territory. Like there were some guys that would only mainly work in the Louisiana end, and then some guys would mainly only work the Oklahoma end. Yeah, it's it's you know as I have said on my monthly podcast, it's not like you have a separate raw roster and a SmackDown roster. The crew is considered one large crew, but as they're expanding, uh, if you look at a map and look at the distance between New Orleans and and Tulsa and Oklahoma City, those are some really long drives. So you end up with rest with some wrestlers that stay closer, you know, to home in Louisiana. I know I've been reading Ron Starr's book and he mentioned when he first uh, came to the territory in 72 or 73, he was living in Baton Rouge and Baton Rouge to Tulsa is a long drive. Uh, the, the geographic center of the territory at this point is Shreveport. So you probably have some guys living in Baton Rouge, some guys living further up North and they uh, Grizzly Smith is booking the Louisiana town, so he sort of has guys that he's using far more often on his shows, but he's still bringing in guys from the you know the rest of the loop that might come in for a week at a time or sometimes even just for a night and they go back up and work the other the other towns up north. it's It's really fascinating to see how many miles some of these wrestlers put on the cars and and despite the 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 fact that we know of many, many, many automobile accidents over the years involving wrestlers, the fact that there aren't more is almost a statistical anomaly. Yeah, you read about certain territories. I mean, I think Mid-South may be sort of the most notorious, but certainly the Carolinas, too, where the weekly loop was two or 3,000 miles, I think, something something like that. And, yeah, you, and you think about, and this is in the 70s and 80s before interstate highways are everywhere, so these guys are driving on rickety back roads in the middle of the night you know it yeah when you consider how many wrestlers there were and how many territories there were the fact that there weren't more deaths is probably phenomenal yeah it's right up there with george costanza on seinfeld wondering how come a plane of baseball players that never crashed you know he's like with all these teams flying all over the place you'd think one of them would, would have gone down and a whole team would just be wiped out but uh you said and i and as we're talking about car accidents you as you said before that's what ends hodge's entering career yes uh march of 1976 on march 2nd hodge wins the uh Junior World Junior Heavyweight title for what, unfortunately, would be the last time, defeating uh, career arch-rival Hiro Matsuda. Um, and, and sadly, less than two weeks later, when driving home late at night, uh, coming back from a show in Homa, actually, don't know if he's driving home or if he's driving to the town he's going to be wrestling in the next night. He, uh, uh, it's believed he fell asleep at the wheel and his car goes off the road uh, as he's crossing a bridge uh, into the water below and he uh, is able to not only pull himself out, but uh, he, as he says it, he heard a voice that told him to hold on to his neck. So as he is attempting to escape his car as it is sinking into the water, he is also holding his neck in place. And as the story goes, doctors told him, had the neck, you know, had his head bowed down even the tiniest bit further, uh, the the extent of his injuries would have been a, a thousand times worse than they were and, and uh, basically insinuating that he might not have survived. But he does break his neck. 
He survives, but he, of course, retires from wrestling at that point, save for a handful of matches seven years later in 1983, and prior to that, the occasional appearance as a special referee or appearing in somebody's corner. Yeah, I think in I think in sort of more modern times, you know, he would make the occasional WWF appearance. Well, I mean, especially once Jim Ross got into power, since you know, Ross, you know, Hodge was Ross's hero, so you know, he would, you probably whenever they were in the general vicinity, you know, he would make occasional guest appearances on Raw or on a pay per view. Yeah, and I I believe even if he's not making a guest appearance, he's there. Um, maybe just to be introduced to the crowd and maybe oftentimes just to be backstage uh, and, 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 you know, uh, perform feats of strength for the, for the wrestlers of today who would just uh, look on in amazement as he would uh, crush the apple, uh, even at his advanced age, uh, which is just uh, such an amazing, amazing sight to see. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, not only because of Jim, but just because of wrestlers in general, just had such reverence for Danny that he was always treated with respect, uh, you, you know, even years later, making these appearances with the WWF. Yeah. Um, so, uh, segueing off of Hodge, since we're talking about uh, that part of the country, um, one other person that I know you've done, um, that you did an article on that people can get, is you looked at the early career of one of my favorite uh, personalities of the you know, from when I started watching until, you know, he passed away, is uh, someone I think you're also familiar with personally, and that is uh, Nature Boy Buddy Landell. Yes, that is correct. Uh, uh, for some of your listeners, I, prior to uh, working on this Charting the Territories project in the uh, mid-90s through the uh, mid-2000s, I worked uh, in independent wrestling in various capacities, often as a manager, and got to uh, work with Buddy Landell frequently and ended up becoming his chauffeur slash handler when uh, he would work for Dennis Coraluzzo in New Jersey. Uh, Buddy lived in uh, southern Virginia at, at the time, and my job was to pick him up, drive him up to New York. Sometimes we even would stop at the Baltimore airport and pick some somebody up along the way because it was $100 less for the promotion to fly the, uh, somebody into Baltimore than it was to Philly. Oh, I, yes. As someone who lives in between the two, I can definitely vouch for that. So oftentimes, if they knew I'm going to be uh, traveling up that way, they would fly a wrestler into Baltimore, and I would pick them up at the airport, and then we would go on to the uh, the best western in West Deptford, New Jersey, was uh, was where we stayed. Uh, the uh, the wonderful, wonderful Kathy Fitz often would pick us up from the hotel and take us to these shows, but it was my job to. Uh, get Buddy into the general area, into New Jersey, and, of course, make sure he uh, would uh, come to the show, be at the show, and wrestle at the shows. And uh, I got to say, for all the stories you hear about wrestlers and even Buddy, uh, there was never a problem uh, on on my end with him. Uh, maybe it's because the, we were traveling such a long distance just for, you know, one or, one or two nights' worth of shows, but uh, he... Uh, and I also think Dennis really took care of him very well. I know Dennis actually took care of me very well. Um, so, you know, there there was really no problems when I worked with Buddy. 
Um, but what I did, I looked at, as you mentioned, the early part of his career um, where he is a, you know, a traveling preliminary wrestler. He gets his start in Knoxville, um, but his first real territory is working for the Poffos. Uh, and then he just sort of travels back and forth between three territories, and that is Mid-South, Memphis and Mid-Atlantic, and he's used as a baby face uh, with dark hair for uh, several years. Uh, he finally starts getting a little bit of a push. I think his, uh, oh, his big break came upon when he was working. Uh, he met Tom Renesto Jr., uh, who uh, told his father, Tom Renesto Sr., one of the original assassins, uh, about Buddy. And Tom Sr. was booking in Puerto Rico. And he called up Buddy and said, would you like to come to Puerto Rico and wrestle as a heel? And Buddy said, I would love to. And he uh, basically was a main eventer. At one point, I think he held two different tag team titles and one of their singles titles. So he's a triple champ uh, in a brief run there. And when he comes back, uh, even in the same territories he was in before, he has now moved up the cards. And this is this is something you see with wrestlers, and it's why I basically call my project Charting the Territories, is that you can literally chart a wrestler's progress as they move up the cards over the course of a career. Uh, virtually every wrestler you can think of uh, that was a main eventer Probably wasn't a main eventer right out the gate. Even Danny Hodge, believe it or not, uh, started a little bit lower on the cards. And I've developed a statistic that um, turns a spot on the card into a number. And the higher it is, the higher up the card you're at. And so you can chart Buddy, Land Buddy Landell's progress and see he's working as a preliminary wrestler in these territories. He goes to Puerto Rico, becomes a main eventer. He goes back to Memphis, and now he's a mid-carter slash upper mid-carter, goes to mid-south. He gets a little push. He gets that big push in mid-Atlantic um, where he is um, in talks to feud with Ric Flair. And unfortunately, Buddy does the thing that Buddy Landell is probably most well-known for and uh, shoots himself in the foot figuratively. Uh, but from there, he ends up going to Memphis and has a huge main event run, first as a partner of and then a foe of superstar Bill Dundee. And if you've ever seen Buddy Landell uh, and Bill Dundee together, they are two of the most entertaining folks on the microphone uh, when they're uh, together. It's gold. Yeah, I yeah the Bill and Buddy show is one of the is one of my favorite things of sort of that era of territorial wrestling. And I always say, and I don't necessarily mean this, I mean, it's sort of a funny line, but it's sort of like, I always say it's unfortunate for Jeff Jarrett that his best angle was his first angle, which meant it was all downhill from there. But that is such an, that is such an amazing angle when they beat up referee Jeff and then they beat up Jerry and Jerry comes out crying and they have to get Lawler on the phone. And that whole thing you know, and then you bring, you know, because Lawler is, is lost a loser leave town match, so he isn't there. And then you add in Dutch, and then Lawler comes back. And that whole relatively brief thing is just one of the, sort of one of the best things of the era to me. Yeah, and it's based on people's real, you know, real live characters. Uh, you know, Jeff being the son of Jerry, again, the story writes itself. Um, 
Now, nowadays, if they brought out a referee and they said he was the son of, you know, a veteran wrestler, all the fans would know what's coming. And it might not be immediately. It might be down the road. But in those days, fans weren't trying to think like that. So if they see referee, you know, if they see Jeff Jarrett as a referee, they're not on the on the lookout for an angle, you know, that's going to happen. And maybe some of them are, but that's not how you how fans were trying to, you know, consume pro wrestling. They weren't thinking about that sort of thing. They were just being taken along for a ride, and they just willingly buckled up and let the ride take them where it was going. Well, it also sort of legit. I mean, it may, you know as you know a fan of sort of old school logical booking it's like well you have the son of the promoter who is 18 year old and skinny as a rail well if he's going to start working in the company business then starting off as like a tv referee would make sense you know i mean he's not a wrestler he's you know he's just a guy you know and, or you know you see somebody or if he would have just been like a go or like the ring boy and that he becomes a referee and, you know, he's a referee for six months and you never do anything with him until you have the right angle and until he's blended in and he's just one of the other people. And, you know, and of course, you know, since wrestling is, is based around, especially in the South, is based around families and feuds, you know, I mean, we started the Continental Project recently and certainly, I mean, the reason it's called It's a Family Affair, other than, you know, for the cheap slime to Family Stone reference, is like Continental and South, you know, Southeastern Pensacola, and certainly Continental, is all built around a family feud between the Fullers and the Armstrongs. I mean, you know, with all the other great people in there, too, but at its core, it's, you know, Ron versus Bob and then everybody else that's a attached to them. It's wrestling's version of the Hatfields and the McCoys. And what's great about this is that um, the promoters of Gulf Coast for many years was the Fields family. Uh, you know, Lee Fields, Bobby Fields, uh, many, many Fields boys. They are, via marriage, Hatfields. I don't know exactly where, but the Fields family that owned Gulf Coast before the Fuller family you know, came in is literally kin to the Hatfields of Hatfields and McCoy fame, which I, I fa find such a fascinating story. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention, going back to talking about Buddy, is, is you know, I didn't start watching until 1985, and I was already a teenager, so I, I always tell people that, like, I think not watching it as a kid gives me a different perspective from the way I watch it because I never – I didn't have those memories as a kid of watching wrestling. So I always watch wrestling knowing what it was and from a, you know, quasi-adult eye, being, you know, at least a teenager, that, you know, that my perspective is a little different. But I remember, you know – but you know, like Buddy was getting his his Crockett is pushing Crockett right when I started watching, and it's funny now to go back and watch Mid Atlantic stuff uh, on the network or YouTube or wherever you get it, and see young brown-haired baby-faced Buddy, and it's just it's so, you know it's so funny to to know who he's going to become. I mean, that's true, like you said, with a lot of wrestling where guys always have to start somewhere. 
But in certain cases, it's very fun to see guys so young being not finding themselves yet. Like, it's funny, you know, from that sort of same era in Crockett and something you've also talked about in slightly earlier Mid-South is seeing pre- uh, Jake the Snake, Jake Roberts, where he's wearing cowboy hats and blue jeans, and it's just, it's, it's just, it, your mind doesn't comprehend that that's Jake Roberts wearing a cowboy hat because it doesn't fit the Jake Roberts that you know. So yeah, so, someone's been putting on Twitter lately some early matches of of uh, Rob Van Dam as a preliminary guy on a couple of WWF TV tapings. Uh, I, I forget the whole story, but Rob actually, uh, someone says, doesn't this look like RVD? Uh, and, and Rob said, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I think he said to somebody on one post, he responded and said that like he completely wore like different gear and changed his hair. So you wouldn't necessarily recognize, because I don't know if he yeah. had been in, in WCW as Robbie V yet. But even there, I think he sort of had that ponytail and singlety look that and kick pads that he, that we sort of know him as but yeah when you see the 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 non-rvd footage of rob van dam it's very strange or guy the best one of all of course is when you see guys who eventually have become famous for having heel foreigner gimmicks before they were heel foreigners you know like it's like they I guess they don't always, you don't necessarily always see it right away, but when you see Jim Nelson, you don't immediately recognize that he will eventually become Boris Zukov. Right. You know, other than the, the giant head. But, uh, yeah, it's it's funny to see, you know, it's funny to see people evolve when they, when they radically change their gimmick. Or they... And fully embrace, I guess, either their inner character or the character they develop for themselves. And Buddy, Buddy is a great example for that. Yeah, because I love, you know, eighty-three, eighty-four Buddy in Mid South, and I love Crockett Buddy, and I certainly love Memphis Buddy. So yeah, so I'm 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 glad you I'm glad your experiences with Buddy were positive. I know when you know I had Bo tell some Buddy stories when he was on here the last time, and. Yeah, that that wasn't always true true for Bo and Buddy, unfortunately. I, yeah, I'd say my my biggest Buddy story along those lines was at one point I apparently became his booking agent, but Buddy didn't tell me about this. But all of a sudden, promoters would start calling me uh, for for dates on Buddy, so I'm like, okay, apparently I'm doing this now. Fine. So I you know and I, I write all this down, and so what you know at one point a promoter calls and. Says, yeah, I just talked to Buddy. He told me to call you. I'm, I'm, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm gonna book him on this date. And me looking at my notes, say, well, I already have Buddy in this town on that date, so I can't do this. Bart says, all right. Ten minutes later, I phone rings and it's Buddy. He says, what are you doing? They were gonna send me my deposit in advance. You're supposed to dummy up, kid. So I was supposed to have accepted that second booking, so Buddy could have gotten a deposit to no show the guy. <laughs> that's right i am very fortunate like my only like i only had the briefest of workings in the actual business and that was as writing the programs and being the ring boy and once making it all the way up to ladder of timekeeper 
That's his for the for the one of the promotions in Baltimore. Like I got my I got my start as timekeeper. So your peak was my low. Think about that, Mark. Well, and, and you know what's funny? And my peak as being timekeeper uh, actually got me yelled at by King Kong Bundy, which is a story I've told on the pod before. But briefly, we were wrestling at a restaurant on the beach on the Potomac. That was either in southern Maryland or northern Virginia. I don't remember which side of the river we were on. Probably in Maryland. But anyway, so we were outside, and this is the summer, and it was very, very hot. And the ring was, like, set up on the, the beach part, you know, a couple hundred yards from the restaurant. So, and it was hot enough that guys did not want to leave the ring or bump outside because they did not want to get sandy. So it was a fairly, you know, fun but nondescript card. And anyway, so Bundy is wrestling in the main event against one of the local guys. And it's, you know, a fairly quick squash, boom, 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 one, two, three, well, one, two, three, four, five, because it's Bundy. And it was like four minutes and 40 seconds. Okay. We go to the back. We're in there. And Bundy goes, hey, brother, come here. He's like, this isn't your fault because they probably didn't tell you this. But never announce a main event for less than five minutes because people will feel cheated. Mm -hmm. right. And I, I said, okay, yes, sir. And I said, that makes sense, and walked away. Now, for the funny part is, one, um, when I, I worked with Jeff Amdor, who you, you may or may not know, but, you know, he's been the timekeeper. Yeah, I, I know Jeff, yeah. Okay. So, you know, like, I traveled with Jeff when we would go farther away. And so, but he always did it as a shoot. So I, you know, I just figured, okay, I'm just going to give them the shoot times. And then I'm, so I'm like, okay, well, you know, at least yeah, being yelled at by Bundy's kind of funny. And I'm driving home and I think, wait a second. I, while I agree with him in principle, this man's most famous match ended in nine seconds. So... If anybody is not going to complain about the length of a match, it's a guy who won a match in nine seconds. But true, I mean, I, you know, I see both sides. But I, I, you know, but I think if you're announcing times for some of the matches, you have to announce them for all. That that's how I view it. And and that being said, then if your main event is going short, maybe you don't put it on last. Yeah. But it was just, I was just, you know, that's my, that's my funny story. You know, that, you know, I got yelled at by King Kong. I was nicely yelled at by King Kong Bundy once. Nicely yelled at. I, I, I actually worked with Bundy a few times. He was, he was great to work with. I, the first time I worked uh, for Dennis Coraluzzo, as a matter of fact, in New Jersey, I managed the honky tonk man against King Kong Bundy. Uh, the, during this match, there were a total of one bump, and I took it. I was about to say, I'm guessing <laughs> I know who took the bump. Yes. Uh, so it, it, that's why they had me there as, as the manager. And then, you know, and so after I take the bump, obviously a pinfall has to happen. So someone has to end up with their shoulders on the map, but it's a, you know, one of the, you know, one of the slower roll-ups you'll ever see. 
as uh, Bundy, you know, rolled Honky Tonk Man up uh, after be, you know, after my distraction where I was trying to interfere and failed miserably. <laughs> uh, but Bundy was great. Uh, you know, to get back to what we were talking about at the beginning, Danny Hodge, because we were talking before we actually started recording about what little footage of Danny Hodge there is. So for listeners who really want to know more about what Danny Hodge was like as a professional wrestler, I saw someone say this very eloquently over the weekend on Twitter. He was like Kurt Angle without the comedy. You strip away all the comedic stuff that Kurt Angle got very good at in his later years and and look at the original you know version of him you know more so as as a baby face than than as you know as, as a heel but that's really the best way probably to describe Danny Hodge's style yeah i know like there's there's a few scattered things that people can find on youtube the one that we were talking about before we started was there's a match between Hodge and Wilbur Snyder from Japan from 1969 versus Baba and Anoki as a tag team. So even if you're watching it just to see Hodge, the sort of historical peculiarity of it in hindsight, seeing, you know, Baba and Anoki as a tag team is, is interesting. I know there's a match from Georgia where Hodge wrestles Jerry Briscoe. That's on YouTube. And I know that the Florida folks have put up like a handful of like really brief Hodge highlights that I think I've seen them post over the last week that may or may not have been up before. So yeah, so there's not Yeah, you know, there's not unfortunately there's not a, a ton of footage. You know, there's you know, you've got you know people who can tell you know, good Hodge stories, you know, Ross, certainly, you know, uh, people that listen to the stud cast have heard all about when Hodge worked in Knoxville and cajoled Dale Lewis into beating up a fan that got Ron Fuller sued and could have been much worse had the fan not been a fan and settled before it got much worse. But yeah, so it's, he's, he's definitely seems like a guy who, you know, at least in some stories, you know, his temper sometimes got the better of him. Yeah, and you you brought up something interesting. One of the things I've learned in my research, there are a lot more lawsuits by wrestling fans, you know, filed by fans against promoters than than you probably think of wrestling fans that got injured during melees. However, Mark, I'm going to tell a story of a time where a wrestler sued a wrestling promoter, as well as several other people where a wrestler actually also sued a fan. And it involves Danny Hodge. Do you know this story? No, please, please enlighten me. So this is Hodge's still in his rookie year. This is May of 1960. So uh, one of the things that they did with Hodge early on is they established his specialty match as a boxing match. His first real feud and his first real main event level feud is earlier in 1960 against uh, the great Bolo, a mass wrestler who at this in this territory was Al Lovelock. 
and the blow-off in many of the cities was a 10-round boxing match, which Hodge would uh, win by knockout uh, based on his pro boxing career, and it sets this up as his go-to specialty match down the line, just like JYD with the dog collar match or Dutch Savage with the, you know, with the with the glove. Um, so they had already set this up, and meanwhile, the world junior heavyweight champion at the time, Angelo Savoldi, ah, was. Yeah was not a homesteader in, uh, in the McGurk territory, but was here often uh, in 1959 and 1960. And Hodge, they finally build him up enough to the point where they're going to uh, put him in the ring against Angelo Savoldi. And they build to a rematch, which is uh, in on May 27th, 1960, in Oklahoma City, uh, Hodge versus Savoldi in a 10-round boxing match. Uh, and I'm reading this from an article I posted on my blog at uh, chartingtheterritories.com. The match was stopped when Hodge's father, William Edward Hodge, entered the ring during the fifth round and slashed Savoldi's back with a knife. Per newspaper reports, the elder Hodge was jailed on a charge of assault with a dangerous weapon and released on a $20 bond with a police hearing scheduled for the following Thursday. And a lot of these times, I'm just taking direct quotes from the newspaper articles. Savoldi, who was hospitalized with lacerations of the back and arm, declined to press state charges. He was being advertised for shows in the Northeast the following week, but appears to have missed those, just because this reads like such a cool storyline, uh, especially since we were talking about family bonds and ties, but this appears to be very legit. Um, so after the May 27th show, his next known booking is uh, mid-June, where he uh, is in Montreal on the 15th and Washington, D.C. on the 16th. In May of 1962, a lawsuit was filed on behalf of Savoldi against the city of Oklahoma City, Leroy McGurk, Danny Hodge, William Edward Hodge, and two Oklahoma City ticket agencies seeking $125,000 in damages. Savoldi's attorney said Savoldi was slashed so severely it required 60 stitches to close his wounds and the wrestler suffered, the wrestler suffered permanent injuries and is unable to continue his profession. Now, uh, Savoldi did wrestle regularly-ish through 1969, um, so unable to continue his profession is not true. I have no idea what happened with the lawsuit, but this is one of those times where instead of the fan suing the promotion or the wrestler, it's the wrestler suing the fan. That is, that is, I think, yeah, you don't often hear, you, you occasionally hear about the over-exuberant family member getting involved, but yeah, not to, uh, not not in the way of crazy stabby fans. No, I uh, I saw one time you mentioned Bo James earlier. I so I worked when I was an independent wrestling manager. I did work for Bo James regularly, uh, and one of the the funniest memories he so he ran a small building in Fall Branch, Tennessee. It is a very you know uh, let's just say it white area, uh, and the fans were to a man uh, as as white as can be, and one time. Killer Kyle came in to to work for the territory and uh, to work for for Bo and uh, his kids were sitting in the crowd, 
So, A, they already stick out like sore thumbs. I, I believe they were of mixed race, but I, I may be very, very wrong on that. But, again, they stand out like a sore thumb. But during the match, they were also cheering, go, daddy, go, go, daddy, go, just in case anyone didn't realize why these two kids who already stuck out like a sore thumb were there. Uh, it was pretty clear after they started cheering for their dad, Killer Kyle. That's funny. Um, before we go, I want I wanted to, to briefly talk about your sort of statistical formulas and research that are sort of the basis of your pod and, and your blog. So I presume growing up uh, that you were probably a, a baseball nerd and a sabermetrics nerd. And so that love of statistics is probably how you came to invent your, your wrestling formulas. You're absolutely correct. Not only was I, but I, I still am those things. Um, but yeah, I was a big sports fan and baseball fan and, and also very quickly realized while I loved sports, I was not good at them. So found another thing to keep me uh, in, you know, involved in sports in some capacity. In fact, at one point, I played football. This would have been in grade school. So you're talking uh, seventh, eighth grade. I got hurt, uh, and my mom pretty much made me quit the team at that point. I became the team statistician. Uh, I, I am familiar with this story. <laughs> uh, and I, I, the, the coach called me Statman. And years later, when I uh, moved and uh, ended up going to a different high school, that same coach ended up uh, being the coach at, at this high school and, you know, would see me in gym class or whatever and remembered me as Statman. Yeah, I was the yeah, I was the high school basketball manager that did the that did the scorebook. And, you know, I believe probably by the time I was a senior or junior, actually was providing guys on the team with statistics using my very crude Apple II to, you know, to chart, to crank out points per game and field goal percentages and things like that on, you know, my little, my little computer and my little dot matrix printer. So yes, I am, I'm well, well, well familiar with your story. Yeah. So fast forward years later when I'm uh, in and around the wrestling business and also, <clears throat> pardon me, in and around uh, wrestling forums online. And I was fascinated reading some of these message forums and, and early days of websites to see that there were researchers that would go to libraries and look through old microfilm of newspapers to find wrestling shows. I should also note there are two librarians in my gene pool so that's uh, something that uh, piqued my interest. And I ended up going to the library in Asheville, North Carolina, where I lived at the time, and going through old reels of the Asheville Citizen Times on microfilm to find shows, not only for Mid-Atlantic, but then I stumbled across some uh, shows for the IWA, uh, Einhorn's promotion, where he uh, attempted to run, quote-unquote, nationally, um, but ended up, you know, more focused in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic regions. And, you know, uh, really got into that. In more recent years, um, I, you know, wanted to combine my two loves, and that is statistics slash sabermetrics and pro wrestling. And as I look at, as I looked at what statistical information is, is available for pro wrestling, 
it's things that are used in real sports that we're trying to apply to wrestling. We talked about title histories earlier. Um, and it's just not quite as linear as we want. Or if you look at wins, win-loss records for wrestlers over a long period of time, they, they, they don't tell the story you think they will. Um, and so I, I just stumbled upon the concept that wrestling cars in the territorial era had an order to them. The preliminary matches generally featured preliminary wrestlers. The mid-card matches generally featured mid-card wrestlers. And the main events generally featured main event wrestlers. So I basically developed a, a way to turn that into a number. Uh, and if you if a wrestler is in the the advertised main event or what I call you know the um, the match with the per perceived highest level of importance, they would get a 1.00. And based on the number of matches, each match further down the card would get a lower number, uh, with the opening match getting the lowest number. And if you take this number and for a you know for someone's six month long run in a territory take the average of all that, this now might be something of value. So I started doing this for various territories and various time frames, and looking at the output, it sort of looked right. Um, you're, you know, in Mid-South Wrestling in the early 80s, Junkyard Dog is probably the wrestler with the highest uh, rating of this score. In Memphis, it's Lawler. In Florida, it's Dusty. In New York, it's Bruno. And so I felt confident, you know, maybe sort of rolling this out in some fashion on Twitter. So I came up with a really cool name for it. I called it Statistical Position Over Time. And I call it that because the abbreviation for that is S-P-O-T or SPOT. So I call it a SPOT rating and it re measures a wrestler's average spot on the cards. Yeah, because obviously win-loss doesn't really work in a worked business because, you know, I know that occasionally at the beginning of the year, someone will send Dave a list of people's records or something, and nine and a half times out of ten, you know, Baby faces have the most wins and heels have the most losses just because that's logically how it works. You know, it's right. And, it, and, and I actually I did some research, Mark. I looked at a long running WWF feud from the 80s and I chose Tito Santana versus Greg Valentine. If you think about those two wrestlers at the time of their feud, which was over the Intercontinental title in the mid 80s, they were on the same level. Uh, on a depth chart. They, you know, they were of equal stature in the territory. Of all the matches I could find between the two, Tito won 60%. Um, and that's a winning percentage. So that calculates ties as half a win and half a loss. Um, but the winning percentage for Tito was 60% and for Valentine was 40%. Now, you might think to yourself, all right, well, that's fairly close to 50-50. But think about this. If a baseball team won 60% of their games, they won 96 games and are probably going to the playoffs. If a team only won 40% of their games, they're probably firing their manager. So 
60% to 40% is actually a pretty big difference. The other thing, particularly in the days of the territories, the results earlier in the card may not have been determined ahead of time. They may be based on what's going to happen in the main event, which is often decided the night of the show based on attendance. Uh, in the Northeast uh, with Bruno or Backland, we hear these stories about one heel might get a three-match series in Madison Square Garden, but only a one- or two-match series in Boston. A lot of times these are tied to attendance. If a feud draws well in one specific building, they might consider running a non-conclusive finish to build to a rematch. And so if you think of a wrestling show as, as you know, a story, much like a wrestling match has a three-part story arc, it's very possible promoters and bookers treat the show as a story as well. And you can't fill in the beginning and middle part until you know the end. So once you know what that finish of the main matches is going to be, that might affect who wins a preliminary match between two preliminary wrestlers. And uh, depending on the ride you want to take your fans on through the course of the night. Second, if you're running a spot town, which is a town that you only come to once a year, which as we mentioned earlier, um, is literally the biggest thing to happen in this town all year, your goal is not to piss the fans off to get them to come back next week. Your goal is to give them a night of entertainment and make them happy. So you're even more inclined to have baby faces win up and down the card on a spot show than you would be in one of your weekly towns. Yeah, and if you want you you do not want people to leave with a sour taste and not want to come back. To, whether it's six months or a year, you know you yeah you want to send the you generally want to send the fans home happy. Yeah, they'll talk about it. they'll tell they'll tell all their friends. Um, so the idea was if these statistics that we use in other sports don't quite work, let's invent some new ones. And, uh, and apparently I did. And so over the last couple of years, uh, through the blog and, uh, more recently through the podcast, we're slowly, you know, uh, exposing more and more people to this new concept of the spot rating and using it. And, and again, it's something that if you look at a bunch of wrestling lineups from the past, you can figure out who the top guys are, who the mid-card guys are. But to be able to put a number to it allows us to see how that changes over time, how Buddy Landell starts his career as a preliminary wrestler and very slowly and gradually over seven years is moved up the guards. Each time he comes back to a territory he was in before, maybe they nudge him up a little bit uh, with the idea being uh, both in a kayfabe standpoint and, and otherwise that he's gained experience since he left and got a little bit better in the fans' eyes or got a little bit better in the promoter and booker's eyes. Um, and, you know, eventually, gradually, after several years, he gets his first main event run in Puerto Rico. And and once you do that, you can, you're you're going to be pushed in everywhere. And you can also see... If a big fish in a small pond 
you know, a main event wrestler in a small territory like a Gulf Coast or a Central States goes to a larger or more prominent territory, where do they end up on the cards? If a main eventer from Central States, let's think of a Roger Kirby, if he goes to Florida, he might not be a top guy. He might be an upper mid carder, you know, but, but he's you know got a different spot rating because the level of talent in that territory is deeper than in Central States. It's funny. The person I w- I thought you were going to say was Mike George, who that yeah, that's another one. Or Sweet Tan, I you know Bob Sweet Tan is a, is an, is another you know longtime Central States guy. But yeah, you know the most wrestlers go to many different territories over, over the course of their careers, some big, some small. And even the big ones, there are sometimes they're doing well and sometimes they're not. Uh, the McGurk territory in particular, there are times when it is loaded with main event level talent. And then a year later, it, the roster is now consisting of wrestlers that we, you know, that didn't have uh, as successful long-term career as the others uh same you know same thing you know florida has its ebbs and flows even mid-atlantic has its ebbs and flows georgia certainly does they you know they all have their ups and downs so it's it's great to look at the roster for a territory at a given point in time and look at who the main eventers are and get a feel for how deep or you know how hot this territory is based on the talent that's there you know, is your, your research is including when Crockett was sending talent to McGurk when Scott was booking, right? That's that's part of your yes. Uh, it's sort of a separate uh, a separate entity. I, I you know when the split happens between Watson McGurk in September of 1979, the the crew that's working the towns all goes with Watts, and Leroy pretty much at first has to bring in a whole new crew. Um, some of which are coming from Mississippi, where the Culkins just folded their Mississippi territory to go with Watts. Um, and he brings in Brian Blair, and then he starts bringing in a couple of wrestlers from Amarillo, and I think maybe even some from Missouri. Towards the end of that territory's run, which is uh, the very end of 1981, is when he brings in George Scott as his booker, and they bring in Paul Jones and Jimmy Snuka, as well as a few uh, mid-carders from Crockett in an attempt to revive the, the, the territory. Yeah, that's, that's sort of a part of that part of history I really wasn't too familiar with until Mike started talking about it on his show. And it was, you know, it's funny to, you know, it's funny that, you know, we end up having a couple of these Crockett satellite promotions, you know, since that's sort of what, Flair and Mulligan's Knoxville, you know, right. was briefly that you and I and I guess most famously Toronto becomes you know Crockett adjacent for a while, and it's funny to see, you know, the same people usually as in the same roles, just in quote unquote out of place at the same time as they're that they may also still be working in Mid Atlantic. Yeah, well, what you know, when Snuka and Jones are there, they leave Mid-Atlantic. It's not like they're going back and forth. They are full time for McGurk for the last literally four, you know, three and a half, I think, months of the territory. But when when the roster at that point consisted of wrestlers such as Jerry Brown, 
and Ron McFarlane and and Jerry Brown is a very well respected wrestler. But in 1980, but 1981 Jerry Brown is a whole lot different from 1973 Jerry Brown. Um, but Brown, McFarlane, a very young and inexperienced Siva Afi, uh, the crew is really rough. And to see someone that looks like Jimmy Snuka and to see someone with the experience and skill level of Paul Jones, they stand head and shoulders above the rest of the territory. It's not enough to save the territory, but it's really evident from what little footage, uh, and there's some TV footage of Snuka um, you know, on TV for McGurk, he really stands out like a sore thumb as, uh, you know, the, in the fans' eyes, even if they were pretty sure that Ron McFarlane is not capable of selling out Madison Square Garden, um, once Snuka comes in, the comparison is, is even more clear that the wrestlers that are, have been working the territory regularly are just a step below uh, the rest of the world. Whereas we said earlier on, uh, territory's goal is to make you think that, you, that the best wrestlers are coming from all over the world. Every now and then when you bring in a stud like Snuka, it exposes the rest of your roster as not the best in the world. Yeah, it's funny. And I think there are certain promotions, probably Kansas City is the best example of that. I think are generally always seen as sort of in the bottom percentile of the promotions in the country that that when you have when you see a young guy there who is probably not being used correctly probably by bulldog bob brown that that yeah that that they seem so oddly out of place when you watch the foot i guess Janetti might be the first example i can think of who you know, it just seems so wildly out of place in in mid, you know, 85, 86 central states. Or just being, not necessarily head and shoulders, but just not a guy in the wrong place. Yeah, he's, a, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, and this happens a lot. Uh, there's also, you know, it's just the old guard uh, is used to wrestlers paying their dues. And even if they look better than the rest of your roster, if they don't have the experience of your roster and you don't know them as well, so you don't know for sure that you that they're reliable and dependable, you're going to keep them down under the guise of pay your dues, kid. And uh, sometimes that is a very legitimate reason to have you know someone low on the cards, but there are other you know, other factors at play as well. I, you know, I, I've told this story on podcasts before, but when I walked into the dressing room in Cornelia, Georgia, and met a young, wide-eyed uh, boy from uh, Gainesville, Georgia, who introduced himself to me as Alan, uh, because I, I introduced myself to him, I said, my name's Al. And he looks at me and goes, well, my name's Alan, too. And that young man is, of, of course, AJ Styles. Um, but when I saw him in the ring as a rookie, you know, you know from the first time you see him that the potential is there. And of course, there's a lot of guys I said that about that never made it for various reasons. But you can tell that if he listens, learns and, you know, is, is uh, led along by the right people, this guy could make it. I, I, I thought the same thing when I worked with Andy Douglas, and he certainly, uh, you know, did make a, a name for himself uh, in Impact for a while. Uh, 
you know, but yeah, you see it all the time. You see guys that, that already have that certain, that je ne sais quoi. And you hope that they, that you get to one day see them on TV. It's so cool to me. Um, you know, when, when guys I work with all the time, I remember uh, another Bo James story. I'm sitting in the locker room in Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, and at this, uh, this, we were working for Tony Falk. And at this point in time, we had separate dressing rooms for the baby faces and for the heels. And Bo was there as a baby face and I was there as a heel manager. So I'm in the heel locker room. Um, and, uh, the phone rings, uh, and, and it's Bo. Uh, so in the baby face locker room, they had a TV. And they were watching uh, the Sunday Night Heat where Matt and Jeff Hardy got their first actual win as a push tag team. Not the fluke win that Jeff Hardy, you know, when he beat Razor by countout, but they got that win on Sunday Night Heat. So Bo calls me up and says, oh, your boys, the, those Hardy kids just won on TV. And I was just so happy for them. Uh, yeah, that's so cool. When I worked when I worked in Baltimore, it was a lot of the, lo- you know, a lot of local guys who were good but generally local and then there was a handful of guys who were like working open dates from ecw like um like stevie and meanie and guys like that and then um i don't know how long they had been coming in before i started there but they were also using christian york and joey matthews yeah joe uh jojo jojo and christian i I love those kids I, i actually worked a lot with joey over the years, uh, God, such a great, such a great guy. Yeah, and I was like, you know, I was like, these are the guys that would probably would be the ones that eventually moved up the ladder, you know. And then they went, and it's funny, we were, I was doing a write up one night, and Christian did something that looked like something I had seen in a Touramon tape. And we were talking about something, and I said, do you have a name for that? And he's like, no, not really. I said, well, because there's a guy in Japan. I'm like, did you see, did you, like, get this from a tape? And he's like, it was like, I, you know, I don't watch tape. You know, it was just, it was just something they thought up. But it was just funny that I was like, oh, these are, I mean, not, you know, taking Japanese spots the way, you know, some guys eventually did, but just like, you know, they were, and then they were, I think that was the first time I met Amy when she was still Angelita or Angelica, whichever Angelica. Angelica and I was, you know, so, yeah. So I remember them in like, you know, 97, 98, maybe. And then, but yeah, they wrestled one night. We were doing a special, Bot show like somewhere in southern maryland and it was a there was a four-way for the cruiserweight title between christian joey and both hardys so you know probably in hindsight that's probably like one of the best matches i got to see while i was working while i was working there and you know and like eventually i think they eventually started using like the young briscoes i think they might have still been in high school when they worked for them, because I think we I think we like did a show at their high school in Delaware. Nice. And so, like it may have been one of those. I don't remember. Now I'm, I mean now it's twenty years ago, so it's hard to remember. But I think like that may have been one of the shows where it was like they wrestled on the show, and then there was a match on the show where like one of the baby faces and the principal or the football coach wrestled against two of the heels. 
Oh, you know, I love what, those. You know, one of those. So, because I remember, because I remember the, because obviously they were, they were either 17 or 18, so obviously nobody knew about them. So when it was like, they're calling themselves the Briscoes, really? I'm like, I'm like, well, we're spelling it differently. And I'm like, yeah, but, and now it's, you know, now it's sort of, don't even think twice about it, but it's just funny. At the time, yeah, yeah, like, I, you know, they they weren't trying to claim anything. A lot of time, names just you know recirculate, and it's not necessarily uh, you know done you know done with bad intent. It's just sort of the way it is. Or you know how Vince would uh, give wrestlers Irish last names. Uh, you know, my, uh, Mike Davis, who became Bugsy McGraw uh, for the first time when he went to Vince because Vince wanted to, to him to have an Irish-sounding last name. I believe the same is was uh, was of was Hulk Hogan, that Vince gave him the Hogan name, whereas he had been Hulk Boulder, or just Hulk prior to that. Yeah, and it well, and it's funny too. The more you read, when it's like, I mean, I certainly didn't know until years later that there had been an original Dutch Mantel. Because there was an you... original Al Getz. <laughs> there you go. And I had no idea, but he was a wrestler in, I think, the 30s and 40s around the Southwest. He actually wrestled Dory Sr. a few times, uh, among many other, you know, recognizable names. But I didn't know this till years later. Um, uh, Another wrestler once used the ring name of Bo James years ago, and that was the future Jimmy, Jimmy Garvin was once known as Bo James. So every, everything new is old, or everything old is new again, or whatever that damn phrase is. Or I, uh, or I like or I like the, you sort of look like this guy from 20 years ago. So we're not going to necessarily call, say you're related, because I think that may be... Steamboat. Well, I was, I was thinking of Zabisco, that I think, because oh, okay. I think Bruno named him that, I mean, obviously he's named after Sassos, but I think it was, I thought the story was that he sort of looked like either Stanislaus or his brother. So he just said, hey, you look like Stanislaus Zabisco, so we're going to call you Zabisco. And, you know, certainly it's better, too, to have an unusual name rather than just, I mean, and then I, I always, then it was one of the funniest ones to me always was I always thought for the longest, when I was a kid, when you would occasionally hear people's real names, that, like, I always thought Sergeant Slaughter's name actually was Bob Slaughter because people would cut promos on him and call him Bob Slaughter. So I was like, well, he's never had a first name, so I'm like, well, maybe he's an... Guys really, I mean, there are people named Slaughter, so it's like... I think I think I think the first I think I heard I think Hanson was the first person I heard him call him that when they were in the AWA and I was like oh because you know about, I mean at that point I had no I you know I, one I didn't I didn't even know about his you know his running Crockett let alone you know being super destroyer mm-hmm. super Mark destroyer whichever he was yes or, super destroyer Mark three or you know Bob Slaughter Bob yeah or Bob Slaughter so. No, the only way the only way you'll know for sure if it's their real name is if they middle name them, like your mom used to do when you were in trouble. So if if Stan Hansen had really been mad at Sergeant Slaughter, he would have said Bob Edward Remus or whatever Bob Remus's middle name was, and then you could say, oh, 
that must be his real name because no one ever middle names you unless you know unless you're really in trouble. Well, the funny one is I never thought, I never put together the fact that Bob Armstrong was given the name Armstrong just because he was a big strong guy. Like it, it didn't occur to me that like I think it was Barnett, you know, who looked at his jacked up fireman that was going to be a wrestler and said Armstrong. You know, yeah, it's just yeah. it's just one of those one of those wacky things, I guess. Keep it keep it simple. Well, Al, I want to thank you very much for your time tonight. We have touched on the podcast and the website, but let me give you the chance to to fully plug away. Sure. So we've talked about this statistic that I've invented. If you want to see it in all its glory, including actual, you know, uh, JPEGs of Excel spreadsheets that I spend way too much time on, um, you can go to my blog at chartingtheterritories.com. It's it's updated uh, a couple of times a month uh, with a look at the McGurk territory at uh, a some point in time. Um, also, once a month on the fourth Thursday of every month, I release a podcast called Charting the Territories, uh, where myself and John Boucher uh, go more into a little more detail of the uh, the, the stories behind the, the numbers. We talk about the numbers, but the podcast in general is more talking about what's going on that, that leads to these numbers being what they are. And, and John, in particular, has a, a wealth of knowledge of wrestling history and knows some of obscure facts about even your favorite wrestler. I guarantee you he knows something about them that you don't already know. And you can check out the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts or at chartingthepodcast.com. And I'm on Twitter because everyone's on Twitter. You can reach me at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling, where on a virtual daily basis, I'm, po I'm posting cards from, you know, on this day in history, uh, looking back at the McGurk territory or at Mid-South Wrestling. Cool. Um, hopefully we will have you back at some point. We did not really get into uh, the fun and vagaries of being a researcher since that was something I learned all too well when I was in when I was in grad school. What skills that have mildly atrophied over the years, but I probably you still have. I know you posted uh, something a couple of weeks ago. Was was like all of your researcher cards, I think, or something to that effect from yeah, and, and from some various the, various libraries. And some of the libraries or state archives I go to, you sort of have to you know sign up and get a, a, a get a card of some sort. Uh, so at, at this point, I'm collecting them, uh, you know, like uh, I used to collect uh, Pokemon cards or baseball cards, whatever you used to collect. Um, but as far as not getting into that, that was on purpose, Mark, because I've, if I gave you everything I had to offer today, you'd never need to have me back. I got to leave some key details out so you will want to bring me back because the house, if the house is good for this episode of the podcast, you're going to want to run it again. You're going to want to run an angle to bring me back one more time. So I'm going to leave some things off the table so we can talk about it. If nay, when you want me back. That is true. I was going to say that when you posted that, that made me uh, dig through my box of stuff and I found my, my ID card from the Library of Congress. Nice. So, so I, I do not remember 
I mean, that was certainly a long time ago, so I have no idea what they look like now. But And, and I added to my collection this week because I, I learned that you can get a library card for uh, Knox County in Tennessee. Um, even if you live out of state, you have to pay a small fee for it every year. But so I did this and I got a library card and it came in the mail. And guess whose name is uh, listed on the return address from Knox County in Tennessee? Uh, the Christmas creature? <laughs> exactly. The one and only Dr. Isaac Yankum DDS sent me a wrestling researcher a library card for Knox County, Tennessee. Yeah, I know growing up that like our county library card was free, but if you wanted to go to the adjoin if you wanted to cross the river and go to the adjoining county, I believe it was five whole American dollars a year to get a library card there. So but yeah, I yeah, yeah I could there yeah. Are, there are ways now for out-of-state residents to get library cards, but I'm going to have to save that for my next appearance. I'm not going to give all my secrets away just quite yet. Yeah, I, would, I will definitely have to share some of my my stories about going to closed stacks libraries. Uh, when I sort of was allowed uh, access to one when I was at Bowling Green and then uh, the occasional times when I was writing conference papers and would have to go to other closed decks and some of the vagaries involved in uh, what you can and cannot do in places like that. But Al, yeah, I want to thank you very much uh, for your time tonight. Everybody check out uh, all of Al's stuff. Um, and hopefully we will have a continental pod sometime in the near future. I am working on guests for that. Um, have some irons in the fire. So hopefully when I hear back from some of them, we will debut the first uh, actual wrestler guest podcast for the It's a Family Affair show. Thanks again, Al, and we will talk to everybody next time.